Let's read this together. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law, but fails in one point, has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. Oh God, we ask you right now to send your Holy Spirit to be among us, to take your written word and write it upon our hearts. We dwell now upon your written word so that we may come alive to you. Give us hearts that are willing to repent, willing to change, willing to hear. Father, I pray that you would speak to us specifically today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The last week we saw in verses 26 and 27 of the previous chapter that James has given us three marks of true religion. The first mark is self-control, the ability to bridle our tongues. The second, which we will be focusing on today, is social action. James says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, in verse 27 of the previous chapter, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows, to take care of the most vulnerable in society. And the third mark is separation from worldly values, to keep oneself unstained from the world. I was reading in the newspaper this week, quite a startling report. It says that because of COVID-19, more households in Singapore are now needing food aid. One charity reported that in January, they were serving 6,000 households. But now in September, they are serving 9,000 households. That's a 50% increase. And they observed that there's a new poor emerging because of the economic conditions brought about by the pandemic. These are young couples, and perhaps even those living in private properties which have, who have a lot of assets but are cash poor and they're no longer able to meet their basic needs for food. Another startling study says that only one in 10 Singapore households does not have enough food. Some of them only eat one meal a day. So friends, though we may be an affluent society, there are great needs out there. And as we saw last week, the church as God's people is called to respond to these needs. But truth be told, as we think more deeply about it, not many of us are deeply motivated to do so. 
we may give some charity, give some of our time here and there uh, to these causes, but to be a prolonged and consistent uh, presence among the poor, that's not something that we have much appetite for. Why is that? Well, today here in James 2, verse 1 to 13, James will tell us why. He will tell us that it all has to do with the motivation and attitude of the heart. He will say some difficult things for us to hear. And this has been a very difficult sermon for me to prepare, not because the words are difficult, but because the words are painful. As I look at these words and I examine my own life and I come before the Lord in repentance, these are difficult things that I've had to hear. And these are difficult things that you and I have to hear. But God speaks to us so that our hearts may be changed, so that we'll come alive to Him, experience His grace. And what James says is this, the reason why many of us do not serve the poor or give token sums to the poor is because of the attitude of our hearts. Deep in our hearts, we favor the rich and we discriminate against the poor. In our hearts, we favor the rich and we discriminate against the poor. And James will say that this is completely incompatible with the Christian faith. Look at James chapter 2, verse 1. He says this, Show no partiality, I think the NIV has show no favoritism, as you hold faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So up front, James says this, favoritism, favoring the rich over the poor, that is no place in the Christian faith. It is completely incompatible with the Christian religion. And in verse 2 to 3, James gives us a story that is sometimes too close for comfort. He says, church gathering, something like this, two men enter. One wears a gold ring and fine clothing. These are symbols of wealth and influence. He's a rich and influential man. This person can do so much for the church. The other person is poor and he has shabby clothing. Another translation says he has filthy clothing. Perhaps this is a homeless man. Both of them walk into a worship service something, some, somewhat like this. Now the ushers see them coming in. And the usher sees the rich man and notices him, knows who he is, knows that he is influential and rich, and says to the man, please, sit, sit in the best, best seat in the church. Come and sit right here, right in front. And gives him that seat and honors him. The usher sees the poor man, the homeless man, and says to him, uh, no seats available. Uh, you can either stand here or you can sit at my feet. And friends, in an honor-shame culture, to ask someone to sit at your feet is to shame them. That's why verse 4 says, you have dishonored the poor man. The two men walk into a church. One is rich, one is poor. They honor the rich man. They give preferential treatment to him. They favor him and they discriminate against the poor person. Now, as you know right now, uh, in order to come to church, you need to sign up on Reopen Church. Right? And Reopen Church, uh, you click it, you get a seat. And what we found in Mon on Monday is uh, two hours, about two and a half hours after we reopened, uh, we sent out the link, it was completely filled out. And we have a system of a waiting list because we want to see how many people actually want to come. And this week, we have 27 people on the waiting list. So some people get bumped off. We open church. They say, oh, I can no longer come. And we want to bump people up from the waiting list uh, into uh, the main service to let them come. Now, just imagine with me, me and you, Heng, as we we're working behind the scenes, trying to figure this out. We see two names. One is a very prominent member of society. 
And you know, church plan, uh, not much money, right? Wow, this guy, uh, he can really help us as a church. And the second guy, we notice, oh, he, he's our friend who visited us during Christmas. And he doesn't even have a place to live. And both of them are on this list. And we have a choice to make. We have one seat that's opened up. Who will we give that seat to? Like you or me, who would you give that seat to? Don't need to answer, just think about it in your mind. And be honest with yourself. Who would you give your seat to? Many of us would be inclined to give that seat to the first man. And that is exactly what they were doing in the first century church. They were favoring the rich and discriminating against the poor. And James says, this is no place in the Christian faith. This is no place in the Christian faith. In fact, if you look at verse 4, he says, this has made you make distinctions. Another way of translating that is, this has made you discriminate. And he says, it has made you judges with evil thoughts. He uses a very strong word. To favor the rich over the poor is evil. To favor the rich over the poor is evil. And friends, you and I may not be so crass as to do it physically, but we do compartmentalize people in our hearts and in our minds, don't we? In local parlance, there's some people we see up and some people we don't see so up. And we distinguish and we discriminate. We favor some over others. James says, this is evil. This is no place in the Christian church. And this prevents you from truly caring for the poor. So very quickly in the text, he will show us three things. Why discriminating is evil, what discriminating exposes, and how discriminating might end. The first point is a bit longer, the other two are quite quick. So why discriminating is evil, what discriminating exposes, and how discriminating might end. Come with me to verse 5. In verses 5 to 11, James gives us three reasons why discriminating is evil. He says it contradicts God, it condones injustice, and discriminating is committing sin. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says this, Has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he gives to those who love him? Simply put, James is saying, God chooses the poor to have faith and to inherit his kingdom. God chooses the poor. And so if God chooses the poor, but you choose the rich, and you discriminate against the poor, what you are doing is not only contradicting the choice of God, you're contradicting the character of the God who loves the poor. This is the God that you claim to worship. He is a God who loves the poor. He is a God who chooses the poor and you choose the rich. You contradict the character of the God you claim to worship. You contradict the very choice of this God. Very simply, if we choose the poor over the rich, we contradict God. Now, does that mean that only poor people can come into God's kingdom? Does that mean only poor people can come into God's kingdom? kingdom? Well, the answer is both yes and no. Come with me to verse 5. Do you notice that at the end of verse 5, James gives us a further qualification. He doesn't just say poor. He says those who love him, those who love God. So these aren't just poor people. These are poor people 
they've come to love God. It's not just about being poor. It's about being poor and coming to a place where you love God. You see, friends, when the Bible uses the word poor, it means, one of, it means two things at least. One, it does mean material poverty, especially in, in, the, in, the, in the New Testament. It's about not having the material resources to get by in life. And the majority of the Christians in the first century were actually materially very poor. They did not have the resources of life. But another way that the word poor is used, especially in the Old Testament, is to speak about spiritual poverty. Spiritual poverty. That's recognizing your neediness and your total dependence on God. Recognizing that spiritually you cannot get by without God helping you. So for example, in Psalm 69, verse 32 and 33, the psalmist says, When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive, for the Lord hears the needy. So when the Bible uses the word poor, it means both material poverty, not having the resources that we need in life to get by, but it also means spiritual poverty, a sense of humility, a sense of recognizing that I am undone, a sense of recognizing that I, I cannot get by unless God helps me. Now complete the sentence. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Where do we find that? We find that in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. That's Matthew's account of Jesus as he's speaking on the Sermon on the Mount. And this is the one that we're most familiar with. Blessed are the poor in spirit. But do you know that there's another record of Jesus saying this in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, verse 20? And in that passage, it simply says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. You see what Jesus has done? Jesus has captured concern for both the materially poor and the spiritually poor. It's not just talking about not having the material resources to get by in life. It's also talking about a sense of spirit that is broken before God, who recognizes that I cannot get by in life without God's help. So friends, whether you are rich or poor materially, all of us need to recognize that we are poor spiritually if we are ever to enter God's kingdom. Why? Friends, because of the gospel. Because salvation is by grace alone from beginning to end. You cannot contribute anything at all to your salvation. Why? Because you have no goodness in yourself to commend to God. You are poor in spirit. So friends, whether you are materially rich or poor, in order to come into the kingdom of God, we need to become poor. We need to become poor. We need to recognize that we have nothing apart from the grace of God to commend us to Him. And friends, that is how a poor person comes to love God. Because you see, friends, someone who is materially poor, their material circumstances predisposes them to recognize that they have needs. They cannot get by in life without help. That helps them understand the gospel. Because in the gospel, God says, your best works are filthy rags before me. You have nothing in and of yourself to commend yourself to me. I must come for you, and I must give you grace. So no, you don't necessarily have to be materially poor in order to enter the kingdom of God. But yes, you must be poor. 
You must be poor in spirit. You must recognize that all that I have, all that I've ever done, all the religious things that I've ever done, none of these things are good enough to commend me to God. I must come empty. I must come seeking help. Friends, who do you prefer? The smug and self-confident or the humble, needy, and broken? Who do you prefer, friends? Who do you want to be? Smug and self-confident or humble, needy, and broken? This passage tells us that God chooses the poor. God chooses those who recognize that they do not have the resources within themselves to commend themselves to Him. And if we favor the rich over the poor, if we discriminate against the poor, we are contradicting the God we claim to worship, both His character and His choice. But the second thing we do when we favor the rich and discriminate against the poor is that we condone injustice. Look at verses 6 and 7. Verses 6 and 7 talks about what the rich do to the poor. They oppress the poor. They drag them into court. They blaspheme the honorable name by which they were called. In James 5 verse 4, it says that the rich held back the wages of their poor workers. You see, friends, in James' time, the majority of Christians were very poor. But there was a minority of wealthy landowners. And they became rich by grabbing land from the poor. And they became richer from using their influence and their wealth to grab even more land from the poor. They used the courts in their deeds, verse 6, and though they may not have uttered words of blasphemy against God, by treating God's chosen in the way that they did, they were blaspheming the honorable name by which they were called, in verse 7. Now friends, this is still happening today. I read in The Economist this week an article that highlights it, the work of a Peruvian economist, a man by the name of Hernando de Soto. Twenty years ago, De Soto pointed out, quite startlingly, that actually many poor people in poor countries had a lot of assets. They had land, land that was given to them by their ancestors. But do you know why they were poor? They were poor because they could not cash out on those assets because they were informally owned. There were no title deeds. And in Hernando, 20 years ago, he estimated that there, were a to- there was a total of $9.3 trillion in informally held assets around the world. In today's terms, it's about $13 trillion in assets held informally. So it's, they have these assets, but they can't cash them out because they're informally owned. They don't have the title deed. Now, when his book came out, his ideas began to spread to many countries, especially developing countries. And many governments started pursuing a project of issuing land titles to these people so that they could prove that they owned the land. Now, this is good. It's progress. You know what the problem is? The problem is the well-heeled and elites can still find loopholes within the law to exploit these title deeds and to grab the land. So even though there's some improvement, the well-heeled, the elite, they can still exploit loopholes in the legal system to grab land from the poor. So friends, whether it's in business or in the legal system, the poor often get the short end of the stick. The poor are often exploited. And friends, you and I may not directly exploit the poor, 
in this way. But James is saying, if you favor the rich, especially these type of rich, you are complicit. You are condoning their injustices. You are condoning their injustices. Now the third thing he says is that when you choose the rich over the poor, verses 8 to 10 says, you are committing sin. Look at verse 8. If you really fulfill the law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. And notice in verse 8 that James uses the term, the royal law. A few things I want you to notice here. Number one, he uses the term, the royal law. Number two, he quotes something that Jesus said in Matthew's Gospel. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And number three, later on in verse 9 and 10, he quotes from the Ten Commandments. Okay, so keep those three things in mind. He calls it the royal law. He quotes Jesus and he quotes the Ten Commandments. Now in Matthew 22, someone came up to Jesus and said to him, Good teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus looks at him and says in Matthew 22, 37 and 40, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends all the law and the prophets. So what is the greatest commandment? Jesus says there are two parts to it. Love God and love your neighbor. And on these two hangs all of the law and all of the prophets. So why is this a royal law? This is a royal law because it comes from a king. And this king's name is Jesus. King Jesus has given us this law and that's why it's a royal law to be obeyed. But the second thing that King Jesus does is that he boils down the Ten Commandments to its very essence. What is behind the Ten Commandments? And Jesus says simply, it's about two things. Loving God and loving neighbor. That's what the Ten Commandments are about. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, this is a confession that our church subscribes to, it says that the first four commandments are our duty to man. It's about love and duty to God. It's about loving God. When God says, have no other gods, don't make idols, don't misuse my name, remember the Sabbath, those are commands to love God wholeheartedly. And the confession goes on to say that the last six commandments are our duty to neighbor. It's about loving neighbor. When God says, honor your father and your mother, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't give false testimony, and don't covet, what is he saying? He's saying to you, love your neighbor. So friends, Jesus is not doing away with the Ten Commandments. Jesus is not saying the Mosaic Law is no longer relevant. Jesus is not saying the law is bad. Jesus is saying, let me get to the essence of the Ten Commandments. It's about loving God and loving neighbor. It's about loving God and loving others. And what he's saying here is this, friends. When we favor the rich and we discriminate against the poor, we're failing to love our neighbor. We're transgressing the law of God, the royal law of God, and the Mosaic law, and we're transgressing the law of love. We're breaking the law, we're committing sin, and we're transgressing the law of love. 
When we favor the rich and discriminate against the poor, we're failing to love. My friends, some of you may not be Christians, and you're hearing about the law of God, and you think it's something cold and sterile and impersonal. No, friends. The law of God, in its very essence, is about love. Loving God wholeheartedly and loving others warm-heartedly. It's all about love. And when we commit sin and we transgress the law of God, we're transgressing the law of love. We're failing to love. Love God and to love others. When we discriminate, we fail to love. Now, I read a a really interesting short snippet on favoritism in one of the commentaries that I was reading. It's a local commentary, and it's written by a a lady by the name of uh, Dr. Justine Hee-jong Han. I think she's Korean. Uh, and she's at the East Asia School of Theology. She makes a very interesting point. She says, when you show favoritism, you always demean people's value. And she goes on to say this, very interestingly, this is true both for those who are denied favor and those who enjoy it. She says, favoritism always undermines identity and affects both the victims and the beneficiaries. You see what she's saying? Generally, we think, okay, if I favor the rich, I'm actually, uh, I'm not demeaning them. I'm, I'm honoring them, and I'm doing good to them. And if I discriminate against the poor, yes, I'm doing something bad to them. But what she's saying is this. When you favor one person over the other, you're demeaning them, whether you show favor to them or you withhold favor from them. It always undermines identity. It always affects the victims and the beneficiaries. Now, why is that? Think along with me, friends. If you are very rich, you come to church, and I, as the pastor, give you special treatment, right? Take you out to dinner, take you out for coffee, show you around, do everything. What am I saying to you? I'm doing that because you're rich. What I'm saying to you is, I'm treating you this way only because of what you can do for me. I'm not loving you. I'm not treating you as a human being. I'm using you. And similarly, when I treat a poor person in a derogatory way, that's what I'm saying to them as well. You don't have value in and of yourself. You only have value insofar as you are useful to me. And when we do that, when we favor someone who is rich or we discriminate against someone who is poor, we're demeaning their value before God. These are men and women made in the image and likeness of God. They are not just objects and vehicles for you to achieve and accomplish your goals. They are there for you to love and for you to serve and for you to commune with. That's what happens, friends, when you show favoritism. You demean both the rich person as well as the poor person because you're not really treating them as human beings made in the image and likeness of God. So, friends, if you have vast amounts of wealth, I do apologize that I'm not going to give you special treatment But please know that I am respecting your humanity by doing so. And friends, that is the kind of environment that we want to build in this church. That we see each other not for what we have or what we are, but who God has made us and what God has done to save us. Whenever we discriminate against people based on who they are and what they have, We begin to treat them as objects and vehicles. We use them rather than love them. And James is saying, we should not do that. James is saying that these are men and women made in the image of God, redeemed by the blood of Jesus, treated 
with dignity purely because they are who they are. And he goes on to make a point in verse 11. I want you to notice something else here. Very quickly after quoting Jesus, what does he do? He quotes the Ten Commandments. That tells us a lot about the Ten Commandments, friends. It tells us you cannot throw out the Ten Commandments because Jesus boils down the essence of the Ten Commandments. He fulfills the Ten Commandments. And James now is commending the Ten Commandments to us. But he's making a theological point. He's saying, he quotes two of the commandments. Do not commit adultery and do not murder. These are two of the moral commandments, two of the commandments that have to do with loving your neighbor. And he says, if you, commit a, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you've transgressed the whole law. You've broken the whole law. He's saying the law stands and falls together. You cannot pick and choose. You cannot say, hey, I'm not an adulterer, I'm a murderer. So I, 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 I succeed here, I fail there, never mind, la. God marks on a, a curve, I pass. No, no. You break one of these laws, you break all of them. They're given as an organic whole, do you know why? Because God is one. And this law is given as his will to us. It's like you cannot say I'm a little bit pregnant. You either are or you're not. You cannot say I've succeeded in fulfilling seven out of the ten laws, therefore I'm 70%. It doesn't work that way. It hangs and falls together. So some in the church may have said to James, you know what, yala, I discriminate, la. you know, I, I don't like the poor, la. Hey, but you know, I tithe to the church, you know. Hey, you know, I do all this charity, you know. Hey, you know, I attend all this Bible study, you know. Hey, you know, I memorize the, okay, la, maybe not that, okay, but I, you know, I, I know all this stuff, you know. I'm very good, you know. And God will say, you failed to love. And because you failed to love, you've broken the whole law. You are a transgressor. You are a sinner in need of the grace and the mercy of God. That is how exacting, friends, God's law is. You cannot pick and choose. It's not a buffet, friends, that leaves you very thirsty because a lot of MSG is an omakase meal. You come before the Lord and He feeds you the riches of heaven and you receive with thankfulness and gratefulness every morsel that He feeds because it is good for your soul. That is how the law is. You cannot pick and choose, friends. You cannot say 5 out of 10, 9 out of 10, I'm okay. No, friends. You do all these things, you discriminate against the poor, the law is broken, you are transgressor. You've committed sin. These are the words of James, friends. Very strong. Final two points, much more quickly. What does discriminating expose? Well, verse 9 says, God chose the poor to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. He did not choose those who have something to give to Him. He chooses those who have precisely nothing to give to Him. Friends, which means if you discriminate against the poor, at a very basic level, you don't really understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. You may confess it with your lips. You may be able to recite all the doctrines of grace. But if you fail to love the poor, the gospel is not burning hot in your heart. Why, friends? Friends, do you really believe that God has accepted you on the basis of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, 
Do you really believe that God hasn't accepted you because of all the good things that you have done or haven't done? That God doesn't see your sin, but He accepts you on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done? So God accepts you not because of who you are or or what you have. That's what we confess, right, Christians? You really believe that? You really believe that? Then why is it you can very quickly look at someone else and measure them based on what they have and what they can give you? How can you do that? Friends, it's very possible to be able to recite the doctrines of Christianity but to not have it burning hot in your heart. And when you discriminate against the poor, when you favor the rich, it exposes the fact that you don't really believe, friends, that you're spiritually poor. It exposes the fact that you don't really believe that you need the gospel of Jesus Christ. And friends, that is a grace. That is a grace. Because we go on to ask, how might discriminating come to an end? Come with me to verse 12 and 13. Verse 12 and 13. Friends, how might discriminating end? And how might true love begin? How might discriminating end? And how might we truly love even those who are different from us? Three things. Keep the law, fail, and cry out for mercy. Keep the law, fail, and cry out for mercy. Verse 12. This is James's conclusion. He says this, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law. James says, friends, you want discriminating to end? You want love to begin? Keep the law. Keep the law of God. Keep the law as one who will be judged by the law. Not just some of it, but all of it. Love God. Love neighbor. Keep it as one who knows. Look at verse 13. That those who show no mercy will be judged with no mercy. So step number one, keep the law of God. Keep it seriously. Keep it as someone who knows that those who show no mercy will be judged with no mercy. Keep it all. Keep it all. Friends, you know what happens when you try to keep all of the law of God? You will fail. I will fail. We will all fail. James will fail. That's why, did you notice, friends, in verse 12, that James says that this is not just the law, but it is the law of liberty. It is the law that brings liberty. It's the law that brings freedom. And very quickly in verse 13, he says, mercy triumphs over judgment. You see, friends, you try to keep the law, and we must try to keep the law. We fail, and we recognize how broken and spiritually poor we are. We cry out for mercy, and mercy triumphs over judgment. How, my friends? Uh, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. Paul says this, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet he, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. See, friends, there was only truly one rich man, 
and his name was Jesus Christ. And this man, he kept the law of God perfectly. He showed no partiality. He loved the poor perfectly. He deserved liberty. He deserved freedom. He deserved honor. But yet, friends, our Lord Jesus Christ was shamed. He was judged with no mercy. He was dishonored. Why? So that you and I, who should be shamed, might receive his honor. You and I, who should be judged with no mercy, might receive his mercy. And that's why, my friends, mercy triumphs over judgment, verse 13. That's how, my friends, the law of God can become a law of liberty only through Christ. And that's how, my friends, God can make the poor rich in faith and heirs of his kingdom forever. Friends, discriminating ends and love begins when mercy becomes real to you. When mercy becomes real to you, friends, mercy becomes real through you. And that is where we park ourselves. Let us pray. Lord, we confess to you today that we have not taken your law seriously. We have not loved you wholeheartedly. Neither have we loved our neighbor warm-heartedly. We see so many areas in our hearts where we compartmentalize. We put people who are worthy and people who are unworthy. And we come before you today and we say we're sorry. Father, you show us today that we do not really believe in the gospel. Though we mouth it with our words, we fail it in our lives. And we pray today for your spirit to come and close the gap, Lord. Close the gap between our speech and our behavior, between what we profess and who we love. And we pray truly, Father, that by the work of your Holy Spirit, you'd bring discrimination to an end first in our hearts and in our community and in our church. And through that, Father, you would make us a church that truly loves the poor and serves the destitute. Not as just a flash in the pan or a project, but as the lifeblood of a church that is loved by God and saved by grace and centered on the gospel. Help us, Lord. We're weak. We're poor. We don't have the resources of heaven. We need you to help us. We need you to help us. Now, Lord, as we enter into Holy Communion, would you take this time to write your mercy which triumphs over judgment in our hearts again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're now going to be taking